Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to tonight's event. Thank you all for being here this evening. My name is David Brophy. I teach in the history department here. I'm a uh, historian of, of Xinjiang, and I've, I've been hoping to organise an event like this at Sydney University for some time, so I'm very glad that with the support of Sydney Ideas, we've been able to um, put this on this evening, and also the, the China Studies Centre. Um, I want to first acknowledge that we're meeting here tonight on the land of the Gadigal people uh, of Eora Nation, uh, land on which Indigenous sovereignty uh, was never ceded. Uh, we pay respect to their elders, past, present, uh, and, uh, a- and emerging. And also note that some of the issues that we might touch on uh, this evening, threats to culture, uh, to language, uh, the removal of children, uh, militarised policing, deaths in, in custody, these are very much live issues uh, in Australia uh, too. So as well as acknowledging uh, country, I'd like to also acknowledge the considerable work that we have to do here in Australia to right the wrongs uh, that were done to uh, our Indigenous population. And, and I suppose pointing out these things is also a way of saying that the issue of human rights uh, in China is not about drawing contrast between China uh, and Australia. Um, this is one dimension of a, a common global uh, issue of discriminatory treatment uh, of ethnic and religious minorities, uh, the extrajudicial deprivation uh, of liberties. Uh, let me also emphasize, of course, that our interest here is with the actions of the Chinese state uh, and not the Chinese uh, people. So, um, for about 18 months now, we've, um, we've known about the existence of a large network of what are officially known as political re-education camps uh, in Xinjiang, this large northwestern region uh, of China, uh, targeting the, the Uyghurs, uh, but also uh, Kazakhs and other uh, Muslim minorities. These minorities um, in total make up about um, 60% of the population uh, of this region. Chinese population now sitting around 40%. Um, estimates are, are difficult, but um, we think uh, hundreds of thousands, possibly up to a million, some would say even more people have found themselves uh, interned uh, in these camps. And these camps are but the uh, most eye-catching uh, elements of a whole new set of repressive policies that have been introduced in Xinjiang by a new party secretary who came uh, to Xinjiang from Tibet in, in 2016. And that's one of the reasons why we're uh, including Tibet in the, um, in the conversation this evening. Uh, there's various dimensions to the official rhetoric um, around these policies. Uh, initially, these were seen as, a, as an extension of the party's campaign against uh, what they call religious extremism, a sort of a de-radicalization measure. And we should acknowledge the, the intermittent uh, terrorist incidents that, that have occurred in the period uh, preceding this policy. Um, we've also seen within the party and among the elite an, an attack on uh, people who are identified as the so-called two-faced uh, people who are regarded as insufficiently zealous in their prosecution uh, of the party's goals. Um, inside the camp, uh, much of the, the curriculum, so to speak, um, involves not just religion, um, but a um, heavy emphasis on the need to adopt um, Chinese culture, Chinese language, and adapt to the mainstream. And that's led uh, some commentators to put the emphasis on the, the assimilationist dimensions uh, of this policy. 
And then finally, from the middle of last year onwards, China started to mount a public defense uh, of these camps as an exercise in, in vocational training. Um, one thing that's constrained discussion of this issue is that the fact that on-the-ground reporting uh, in this region is all but impossible. People have had to rely on things like satellite imagery, um, scouring the internet for official uh, information. Uh, there's very few people that have come out uh, of these camps, uh, mostly foreign citizens. And it has been reported, in fact, that there are three Australian citizens uh, among them, although we haven't heard any testimony from them um, since they came back. There's been a handful uh, so far of reported uh, deaths inside the camps. There is testimony uh, involving things like physical torture uh, and so on, but there is very little that's verifiable uh, in that respect. Clearly, though, what we do know is enough to say that this represents uh, a denial of freedoms on a, on a massive scale. China has been criticized um, at the um, various UN bodies, uh, but so far there's been little sign of, of changing course uh, on this. Uh, it's received attention from some quite prominent political voices uh, in the United States, um, and Uyghurs themselves have been much more active in the diaspora um, than we've seen in, in the past in, in demonstrations, uh, lobbying and, and social media uh, and, and so on. And of course, one of the issues we might discuss tonight is what an effective response to this um, from here in Australia uh, might look like. So, of course, I think we're all aware that this is a sensitive issue. This is an issue that is a personal one, uh, I'm sure, for, for some people um, in the audience. You'll all be approaching this from uh, different directions, and we welcome contributions from uh, all of those different viewpoints. We're very fortunate that Sydney University is a place where we can have uh, discussions like this, and I, I'm confident that everyone can engage in this uh, in, a, in a respectful way. So just to talk about the format, we're going to have some brief introductory remarks from uh, our speakers um, now, and then we'll, we'll sit down here and have a conversation among ourselves for about 20 minutes uh, or so. And then the remaining time, I'm hoping up to you know, half an hour or, or maybe more, uh, will be for, for questions and, and comments uh, from the floor. Um, so let me um, now move to introducing the, the panelists uh, for this evening. Uh, first up, we have um, Erkin Siddiq. Um, Erkin Siddiq is joining us from the United States. He's an optical engineer uh, at, at NASA. Uh, he's a member of its uh, Jet Propulsion uh, Laboratory, and I, and I think we can say a prominent intellectual within the, the Uyghur diaspora, and he's obviously in a position to provide uh, a viewpoint on this situation from within the, um, the Uyghur community. Um, Second, we have um, David Atwill, who's visiting uh, thanks to the China Studies Center. He's from Penn State University uh, in the US. He's a historian of China with a focus on its uh, Muslim regions. Uh, his most recent book actually is a book about uh, the Islamic community in, in Tibet. Um, and so his comments, I think, will focus on where this issue fits within the wider story about uh, ethnic and religious policy uh, in, in China. And then finally, we have Ruth Gamble, uh, from uh, La Trobe University. She's a, she's a scholar of the, the history and the language and literature uh, of, of Tibet. Uh, she has a new book out uh, just last year, which is entitled uh, Reincarnation uh, in, in Tibetan Buddhism. And her, her current research focus deals uh, very heavily with, with waterways uh, and environmental uh, issues. So we'll be asking her to provide some comparative uh, dimensions to, to this uh, issue. Okay, so I'm going to now ask the speakers to come up one by one uh, and kick things off with their introductory remarks. Thanks.
Good evening. My name is Eric Sadek. I was born in Aksu city of Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. Um, I was born there and grew up there. I finished my elementary school and middle school, high school there, and finished my college in Urumqi at Xinjiang University. I finished all of my um, schools in Uyghur language medium, and now all those schools are gone. Uh, the recent news is you can even uh, talk to each other on the street in using Uyghur language. It, it was completely banned. Um, <clears throat> I want to start from my uh, personal story a little bit. Uh, I have a sister and the two brothers still live back home. And uh, uh, I haven't talked to them for more than two years. They, we cut, they cut the phone con connect completely. Uh, I, I know my sister is alive and not in the concentration camp because she has a son in the US. Um, he can communicate with my sister once in a while. Just a, are you okay kind of thing. Uh, my two brothers are in Aksu, and I don't know if they are alive or dead, or if they are in the camp or not, or not in the camp. But even not in the camp, it's an open prison at the moment. <coughs> that situation. Um, in addition to that, uh, because of my uh, work at JPL, uh, I work on space telescopes to, for direct detection of exoplanets, habitable exoplanets. It is something that a lot of people got interested in. Uh, I have given talks in many countries, like uh, Germany, Japan, uh, Sweden, uh, Norway, kind of. Um, so I, last time I went back to Urumqi, my homeland, um, in 2009, from May 20th to June 12th for three weeks. Um, at that time, a lot of students, college students, wanted to meet with me. So the first thing I did on the second day of my arrival to, to ask the police, police for permission if I can meet with students because they want to take pictures with me. And they said, yes, you can go to campuses, but no, don't go, to, go into classroom, don't go to report hall, don't give any report. It's okay if you meet in the campus. So I met with students for, for a week, I mean, in five days, about four days. And I originally expected like uh, 20, 30 students. But uh, when I went to Xinjiang University, for example, I ended up with like uh, 300 students. I didn't know about that. Uh, we had some question and answer session. Um, basically, I always talked about three topics. One is, they asked me what I do in NASA. So I will give some brief introduction about that. Second thing is, how did you, how did you study to, to get where you got today? So how I did when I was in Xinjiang. Uh, I told my story about that. And the third one is, how I should prepare if I want to go to abroad to study. Those three subjects. Because I, was a, I am a US citizen, I was extremely careful. I didn't want to put those people, our kids, in trouble. Uh, for example, once one student asked me about, asked one question about bilingual education. I published some papers on bilingual education. When this whole, whole thing started in, in Xinjiang, I said, what's the bilingual education? I, was a good, I am a good friend with the, the world-famous scholar on the subject. And uh, when, uh, when, when somebody asked this question, I said, I cannot answer this question. You, you read my article. That's what I did. Uh, even if I was so careful, uh, I heard many uh, stories about what happened to those kids. 
uh, my estimation is about 300 people or 3,000 people. The, my friends telling me they're all gone uh, because meeting with me, taking pictures is, is one of the reasons for them to go to concentration camps. Um, in addition to that, I have a classmate, a good friend at college. When I say classmate, uh, a lot of you don't understand. In my time, uh, 30 students were together for five years. We occupy one classroom and we don't move. Teachers go around to teach different classes, but we stay in the same classroom. So we know each other's secrets. We just like our relatives, we know each other so well. I had a friend. Um, he went to Japan uh, after me. I, went, I spent two and a half years in Japan as a visiting scholar. And he went to Japan, got a master's degree. Um, he came back and got many prom promotions. The last position he, hold, he held is, uh, is the vice president of information and electrical engineering institution, institute at Xinjiang University. Uh, he disappeared in last February, February of 2018. And um, his wife was a medical doctor in Xinjiang Medical College, uh, Medical University now. And uh, she got mentally disordered. And later on, we learned he was uh, put in prison and uh, given death sentence uh, with two-year reprieve. Um, I have connections, like a personal friendship with many leading intellectuals, artists, musicians, writers, uh, and the critics. And uh, at least more than 20 of them are all gone now. Um, some of them got the death sentence. For example, the president of Xinjiang University, Tashplat Tip, he got his PhD from Japan, and he got another honorary PhD from France, and uh, he, he was given death sentence. Um, so that my Dilma Tursun friend, he gone, Tashplat Tip, he's gone. We, I have a lot of other friends. Uh, they all got uh, long prison terms or got the death sentence like that. Um, the, Recently, uh, I got another news that uh, I had a, a friend, Mutalib uh, Nurmamet, uh, <coughs> he came to the U.S. In, in the year of 2000 and got two NBA degree and he went back. He's, a, he's the son of a very rich Uyghur person from Atush, one of the most rich people in Atush. But uh, he, went, he was kept in a concentration camp for nine months last year, released in December. And the, died eight days later, internal bleeding. He's a very strong guy, very big, strong guy. Uh, he went back to serve his people. He's, uh, he's, he, they are very rich, no need for money or something, but he went back, this is the uh, ending of that. Um, so that's why I am here today. I have so many friends, colleagues, all gone, and uh, I just uh, want to do something that I could do. That's why I am here. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Siddick, for such vivid examples of the events that are occurring in Xinjiang. Um, my name is Dr. David Atwell. Um, I teach at Penn State University. I'm a historian by training. And I want to take a slightly different perspective, um, one that concentrates on two aspects that I think are the backdrop to what's occurring um, in Xinjiang. And that is ethnicity and religion. And these two categories play both at the events on the ground, but they also offer insights into China 
and how China sees the Uyghurs, how they perceive Xinjiang, as well as the larger Muslim community. Um, the internal logic behind their actions, their policies, and the goals of the Chinese government. Many of you will maybe know some of the things I'm talking about, but I think going back over this draws into a starker contrast many of the things that Dr. Siddiq are talking about and that the panel can address this evening. But let me stop, start with something very concrete, um, the PRC constitution, because I think we have to understand kind of how ethnicity and religion sits in Chinese law. And the PRC constitution addresses both these issues very concretely. In chapter one, article four, it addresses ethnicity and it says all ethnic groups, Minzu, in the People's Republic of China are equal. The state protects the lawful rights and interests of the minority nationalities and upholds and develops a relationship of equality and unity and mutual assistance among all of China's Minzu. Many of you will know that China's population today is about 1.4 billion people. Of that, 92% are Han Chinese. Okay? So the vast majority are just one single ethnic group. In all, China has 56 ethnic groups. So 8% of the population is spread out over 55 other ethnic groups. In the eyes of the state, every Chinese citizen has an ethnic identity. It's on your identity card. And so regardless of your ethnicity, in the eyes of the state, you remain a citizen of China. Now, the state also has ideas about religion. In the Constitution, Chapter 2, Article 36, it states, citizens of the People's Republic of China enjoy freedom of religious beliefs. Many of you know that although PRC is officially an atheist state, the government recognizes five official state-sponsored religions. That's Buddhism, Taoism, Catholicism, Protestantism, and Islam. Now, from the religious perspective tonight, we're really focused mainly on that last one of Islam. And in China today, there are roughly only 21 million Chine uh, Chinese Muslims. Now, if we take these two categories and kind of think of it as a Venn diagram, there's only a very small sliver then of all of these 56 ethnic groups that are practicing Muslims. In total, there are 10 different ethnic groups that practice Islam. But these groups are not evenly distributed across China. It's best probably to think of it this way. They're, they typically fall into one of two categories. The first category is essentially most all of the 10 Muslim ethnic groups live in northwestern China. Xinjiang province, Gansu, Qinghai, Ningxia. And in wide swaths of this area, the Muslim ethnic groups are the majority population. All right, and this is a rarity. If you think about, again, what I said at the beginning, that out of the total national population, 92% are Han Chinese. This is the inverse in Northwest China. This might 
we have essentially what is called the majority minority. That essentially in the Northwest, these Muslim groups are in the majority. To put it lightly, this is a situation that makes many in the Han majority and definitely many in the Chinese government slightly uneasy. The biggest exception to this, and this is the second category, is the largest Muslim group known as the Hui. The Hui are one of the only ethnic groups present in most every Chinese province and particularly are prominent in urban centers. Because they live across China and have been present in many of these areas for many centuries, they tend to be both more tolerant of and willing to embrace many Chinese cultural practices. But as most of us know, familiarity doesn't always breed acceptance. So let me bring this short introduction up to the present by saying that like elsewhere in the world, Islam has in the last two decades become a hot political topic in China as well. And as we also can see elsewhere, China has a long tradition of dividing Muslims into two camps, good Muslims and bad Muslims. The good Muslims, typically the Hui are an example of this, are those who speak the Chinese language, who tend to be more culturally integrated into China, and thus in the eyes of the majority, more trusted by the central state. The bad Muslims, and the Uyghurs from the state perspective are one of these, are those who continue to prefer their own cultural traditions, speak their own language, and retain their own style of dress, and thus are seen as more suspect. When we align these value judgments alongside these cultural judgments to essentially align with the majority, it's not difficult to see how small a step it is to take to align those same cultural judgments to political loyalty. So let me bring this back and conclude with the ideas of ethnicity and religion. Both categories are salient and critical to the central government. But how does ethnicity and religion relate to Xinjiang, as well as the larger concerns about Islam in China? I think it's best not to pose this an if-or sort of question. Instead, it's a question of speaking more generally and more specifically. Speaking generally, we can find examples across China where Islamic practices are being increasingly restricted. That is to say, religious freedoms, particularly among Muslims, are in the current environment more circumscribed. But more specifically, over and above that trend, ethnicity is being used to target specific groups, such as the case of the Uyghurs. To put this slightly different, we are seeing both increased religious restrictions towards Muslims across China generally, and ethnic targeting of the Uyghurs specifically. But let me stop here. I hope you found this background helpful, and then I'll pass over to Dr. Gamble.
So uh, as opposed to talking about people, I'm going to start by talking about space. It's not your type of space, ground space. Um, so I've been thinking a lot about maps lately and how maps uh, influence the way we look at the world. And it kept striking me when, we were, when David was talking uh, that when we think of China, it's usually uh, as one unit, with, which is a little bit wonky, but it looks like a unit and it looks like it's always been like that and it's always flat, which when you're working on Tibet is a bit of a problem. Right? So when we think about that map of China, there is this idea that 90% of the Chinese population is Han Chinese, the majority population, but they all tend to live on one side, on the eastern side. And you have these big spaces in the west of Xinjiang, Tibet, and Inner Mongolia that are much less occupied. There's much less people there, but it's where the majority of the, mi the, majority of the minorities live. And the other thing about these maps is that they don't give you a sense of the distinct uh, e ecological systems, the distinct environments in which these peoples live. Right? So the Uyghur people are connected to, have been traditionally connected to Central Asia through the Silk Road and through the caravans that worked, walked, worked along uh, that, those steppe plains. And the Tibetans have been uh, just south of there, but they live in a completely different environment. The Tibetan plateau acts as if it's a, an island in the sky in a lot of ways. Uh, to go up to the plateau from anywhere else on, in the Asian continent, uh, you, you're going up a couple of kilometres, usually up. So you're creating a very different space in which things happen. So the Uyghurs and the Tibetans have lived right next to each other and had fairly little to do with each other over the past couple of millennia. Right, so this thinking about how this space works in China, I think, is really important to understanding it, as well as the uh, constructs of the, s of the state and how that works with what we've both been talking about. We've been talking about religion and ethnicity. Um, I don't know how much um, everybody knows about Tibet. Uh, it tends to come up in uh, movies every time someone wants to say something spiritual um, or uh, some movie star has uh, fallen in love with the Dalai Lama. Um, but it, it tends not, it, it falls in and out of the radar um, depending on popular culture. I've been watching the Tibetan, uh, I've been working with Tibetan language and culture and everything now for. Uh, too long, because <laughs> it's making me old. Um, but uh, it, it, uh, over that time, I've seen the interest in it w wane and, and uh, rise. Um, so just to give you a bit of brief history of how that map came about, not just in terms of space, but also in terms of uh, temporally in time, uh, there was the idea of China as a border with all of these different ethnicities in it uh, didn't re it was much more fuzzy even a hundred years ago. Uh, but then with the, the founding of the People's Republic of China, uh, the, uh, the, the people who founded that republic, who decided on its borders, included areas like Tibet and Xinjiang. And then that meant that the people within those lands became minorities in their own lands within a sh very short period of time. And uh, Tibet was a bit of a different issue to, had, had a bit of a different circumstances to Xinjiang uh, because the majority religion in Tibet is, has always, well, has been for the past 1500 years, uh, is Buddhism. And it seems that uh, the greater Chinese population and, the, and later the Chinese state has an idea that Buddhism is something that is more, uh, has more of an affinity to Chinese culture. It's seen as something that is not necessarily completely other to Chinese culture. 
Um, so when the Chinese took, took uh, control of the Tibetan Plateau in the early 1950s, they started working with the local uh, Tibet Buddhist leaders uh, to try and figure out some kind of compromise. And at that stage, the young Dalai Lama, uh, who was very young, uh, was really excited about working with the communists. Um, but then things fell apart in 1950, between 1951 and 1959. Uh, the situation degraded between, uh, between them, and in 1959, the Dalai Lama fled into exile in India, along with about 100,000 other Tibetans. And when they moved down into India, there was also this interesting dynamic that's a bit different to the Uyghurs, in that they were moving into areas of the Himalaya outside the People's Republic of China, that are, have a lot of affinity with them. There's countries in the Himalaya, uh, in still independent countries that are practicing Tibetan Buddhists that speak Tibetic languages, and there was a lot of affinity and they had a lot of support from the uh, non-Tibetan uh, Tibetan Buddhists, if that makes sense. Um, so you had this uh, diaspora, a large diaspora, uh, inter interconnecting with peoples who they had a lot of traditions and languages in common with uh, on the outside of the People's Republic of China. Within the People's Republic of China on the border, uh, uh, sorry, on the plateau, you had uh, increasing tensions uh, throughout the Cultural Revolution and then through the 1970s, um, but there was uh, very strict controls. And it seems like every time that the Chinese state lifted control a little bit, there was an, there's been an uprising in Tibet. Uh, so one of the first ones uh, post uh, the uh, liberalization period was in uh, 1988-89, and then there was another uprising in 2009. Now, these uprisings have caused deaths on both sides. Ev everything about Tibet gets argued, um, so there's argument about how many people die, but there has been, as in Xinjiang, uh, repeated uh, uprisings. And since uh, 2008, and there has been ongoing tensions across the plateau. Uh, you don't have the same response from the Chinese state as, as, as in Xinjiang, but uh, the major um, problem that we have in, in Tibet has been the Im immolations, uh, the self-immolations that have been carrying on, and there's about 100, up to 150 now. Um, there's also a sense that the Chinese state uh, is working differently, that you don't have the same camps. Um, you have a relationship where instead of uh, trying to get rid of the religion, they're trying to co-opt it. Um, so there's a lot of signs everywhere saying, please have faith in Xi Jinping. He is like a lama. Um, and, uh, and, the, and, this, and the party is like your, um, uh, your, your, your congregation. Uh, so there's uh, some differences and some commonalities, and uh, hopefully with the discussion we can uh, look into them more. Thanks. Thanks. Um, thanks to all of our speakers for um, kicking things off with the, that introduction. Um, my sense of the, the global conversation around this issue is that there are really two large questions hanging in the air that, that I don't think we, we have a clear answer to. And those are the questions of what is precisely motivating uh, what is taking place uh, in, in Xinjiang, and also to, to a lesser extent um, in, in Tibet. There is an intensification um, of these security policies there too. Um, the, um, we don't have any insight into the internal deliberations uh, within the, the Chinese government or the um, Chinese Communist Party that has, has brought us to this point. So there's, you know, there's various different uh, lenses through which to look at this. Obviously, we have the ostensible uh, 
justification in terms of terrorism. Some people have tried to connect this to uh, foreign policy priorities uh, in Central Asia. For example, the, the, the Belt and Road Initiative is sometime, sometimes brought up in this space. There's, um, there's also been a discussion of where this sits in relation to uh, policy debates, theoretical policy debates that have happened in the last five years or so in China uh, regarding the status of uh, ethnicity within the constitution and this system of uh, ethnic categories or, or minzu. Uh, there has been some debate about tinkering with that and creating a system that would allow for um, greater uh, interaction and I guess assimilation between these, these different groups. So is it being driven by a sort of a, you know, a theoretical shift in the, in the party's thinking? These are uh, these are all questions, and, and it, it does bear then on you know, how we imagine this situation uh, playing out. Um, so I suppose that's the, that's the first question I'd like to um, throw out to people. There may also be some you know, more contingent factors uh, at work here in terms of the career aspirations of uh, officials in Xinjiang. So I might get Ruth at some point to talk about the party secretary of Xinjiang, his, his previous record in um, in. T Bet. And also, uh, David, you're writing a book at the moment about a 19th century official who was sent out to Xinjiang. I don't know if you have any insights from that about the way officials approach this region. But maybe I thought I'd ask Erkin mm -hmm. briefly first, do you have any sense, or where do you put the emphasis on explaining this, um, this situation? Yes, actually the, the, the current policy of the Chinese government uh, was finalized in around 2014. You may ask how you get this kind of information uh, we have direct, partic direct participants on this process, policy-making process. And uh, because it's uh, such a horrible policy, people always like, uh, risk their life to send out uh, information outside the China. Um, so actually, the current policy did not come from Chen Zhuanggu. Uh, uh, actually, yeah. it came from Xi Jinping directly. Yeah. Uh, it is indeed related to Belt Road Initiative. Um, the China has been trying very hard to, to do two things. One is development, one is stability mm. in Xinjiang. Mm. So this year it will, it will be like a 70 years since the Communist Chinese occupation. But uh, they were not successful. Uh, so it, they were determined this time to solve this problem. And it became very urgent. Uh, in terms of the road belt initiative, because there are two major routes uh, to Central Asia and the Middle East. One passes through uh, Xinjiang, and as one starts from Xinjiang to Gwadar port of Pakistan. Mm -hmm. uh, so to be successful in this project, they have to have a stability in Xinjiang. And uh, so this is the whole picture that uh, shows up in their policy it came from the central government, not from Chen Changguo. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the Chinese, China has a very strong uh, hierarchy. The one, one person in Xinjiang cannot, cannot make a big policy decision. Mm -hmm. um, so um, actually, today, the David mentioned a little bit about uh, the religious uh, situation. It's like becoming um, more and more restrictive. Actually, it's not. It's completely gone. The, the religion, the Islam, is not allowed in any level at the moment. And uh, the people talk about the different aspects, like a cultural genocide, or ethnic, or physical genocide, or something else. Actually, if you look at the whole thing that's happening right now, it's a many-dimensional. Mm. These two only are the two dimensions of the many-dimensional dimension, aspect of it. Mm. The final solution, final results they, they are expecting to achieve, eradicate the race. Um, 
that's the that's the whole picture that I see. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, I have a lot of like images, information. If you ask if I can like a confirm it by by a, by a very solid source, I can't because the because the Chinese government keeps a lot of this kind of information as a top state secret. Mm -hmm. The people okay. can lose their life yeah. for it. Okay, thanks. I completely respect your, your perspective on this situation, um, but I, I do want us to be careful that we, we could stick to what is you know, verifiable at this point. Um, and there's, there's certainly a lot of, uh, there's certainly a lot of um, talk around this issue that is extremely troubling, but we're not yet able to, to confirm everything that we're, you know, that we're hearing about this. Um, do you guys want to jump in on this, this question of sort of the origins of this and what is the key sort of driving factor? Do you have any, any thoughts on this? Yeah, yeah. I, I just have one thought. And uh, I, th I think there has been a general policy against religion generally, but Islam in particular. And it seems that the Chinese government has been taking distinctive steps to adopt a far more secular position that didn't exist even just a few years ago. And one example I think that really portrays this is this pan-halal movement. And so the state used to participate in registering and monitoring halal production of food so that food was labeled as halal. And in just this past year, the, step has, the state has deliberately stepped back and decided not to uh, oversee this process and facilitate this process in order to maintain a secular state. So it seems like we're really seeing a, a pivot um, away from that kind of constitutional right towards religious freedom, or at least state involvement in that in very real ways, inside and outside of Xinjiang. Yeah, um, did you want me to talk about the man that moved? The, from if, you're, if you have anything to well, say about him, that's, that's Something a, that's struck me when you were saying yeah. it, that, that um, uh, so it, I mean, it's a very different approach that you're getting in Tibet, um, because there isn't, there isn't a very a strong case being made against Tibetan Buddhism per se, and there's actually a lot of interest in uh, personal practice of Buddhism in China more generally. So you get a lot of very rich people who have their own private lamas and, um, and, and, and best-selling books about finding inner peace and so on. So there's kind of a more um, commer uh, commercial version of it, but there is uh, a lot of resistance to having any kind of organization any of religion, so there's, it's very hard to become a monk or a nun and to be able to stay a monk or a nun in an organized, in an organized way. Um, and, and I would say that when the, uh, before, about uh, 10 years ago, there was a big program which actually led to the, the 2008 uprising, which was to re-educate monks and nuns within monasteries as opposed to other centers. So there, and this, that, that was one of the main causes that people were giving for um, their 2008 uh, uprising, that they were being asked to um, re be re-educated. So it does seem to be there's like a different practice and there's a, 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 a um, it, it's about more religion in this case than ethnicity and a different approach uh, to some religions as opposed to others. I mean, that's what it seems like, but yeah. Thank you. I, I said that there were two difficult questions. Um, that was one of them. The other one is a sort of more future-oriented. What is, um, you know, what can people do about this? Um, what is, um, uh, what are the prospects of uh, any change 
from within China um, or, or um, mm. some uh, productive activity um, outside China. Um, I said that, that there has been a um, you know, concerted effort by sections of the Uyghur diaspora to be much more public uh, around this. There's, um, if you're, any of you are on social media, there's been a campaign that, that got going um, about a week ago. Uh, it's, it's hashtag MeTooWeger. Um, came out um, from the case, uh, you might have seen the news about, it was initially uh, a rumour went around that a famous musician uh, from Xinjiang, a, a Dutta player, had um, died uh, in an internment camp. Um, now, that was actually subsequently um, you know, refuted by the, um, the Chinese authorities. They released a video uh, of this, but that then sparked a lot of Uyghurs to, to have the confidence to come out and say, well, if you show a video of him, uh, why don't you show a video of my relatives um, too? So if you, you'll find a lot of um, personal testimony um, if you check that uh, hashtag. Erkin, can you say a bit more about how the, um, the Uyghurs are responding to this? Um, are, are there any sort of models that you, can, you draw on um, in, in this sort of activity? And, I, and this is a possibly, a, you know, the, the, there might be a very simple answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it. I mean, what sort of dialogue is there around this issue with, with Chinese people? Um, not necessarily inside China, but, but outside China. Yes. Could you comment on that too? Yes, we, we are constantly looking for ways to, to do our campaign effectively, mm. especially because everybody abroad, we were diaspora, all affected. Mm. Uh, I get letters uh, from very different people, like kids, like uh, the college students who came to abroad to study, you know, suddenly there's a source of finance gone, they mm. don't have money anymore, mm. so to pay school, mm. so they are in chaos mm. to find a way to live. Uh, they cannot go back, they going back means they will, they will disappear on, at the airport. Mm. We, it happened a lot. Mm. Um, they, I, have a, I have another girl, for example, his dad got in and she got a letter from her mom, uh, the, the message, um, the WeChat message, and she said, my dear daughter, please forget me, forget me and your dad. The existence of me and your dad, mm. just have a good life, never come back. Mm. That girl almost became mentally disordered. Mm. She, she, she like a daughter to me because I was a good friend with her mm. father. He's a, he's a writer, published more than 20 books, professional writer, mm. and he got into prison. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we have this kind of tragic stories from anybody you can talk mm. abroad, mm -hmm. everybody. Sure. So because we don't know what else we can do, so, so right now we just want to uh, increase the awareness of the international community. Mm -hmm. uh, if, if the whole international community can, can be mobilized and put some pressure on their government, mm -hmm. uh, they may be able to stop the Chinese government from what they are doing right now. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. the major step we are taking. Yeah. Ruth, I, I thought I might throw this to you because, I mean, in the West, certainly the Tibet issue has had a much higher profile mm -hmm. than, um, than the Xinjiang case, the Uyghur case. I mean. Going back to the 1990s, this was a you know quite a hot button issue. We had um, you know Hollywood got involved. The Dalai Lama met with a couple of U.S. presidents, um, and there is you know there has been a um, concerted free Tibet campaign that um, you know mm -hmm. exists in in various forms. I mean, do you think there are any? I mean, do you have a balance sheet in your <laughs> head about all that work and you know things that might have contributed to improving the situation in Tibet? Things. You know things that didn't work. Um, that 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 type of question is because, in a sense, I mean, we are, you know, going through some of the similar. Sure. There's, a, there's a bill before the U.S. Congress right now that has a lot of the same elements. You know, setting up a special coordinator for t for Xinjiang 
just yeah. as they have one for Tibet. So they're copying a lot of the same techniques. I mean, what? It's really complicated. It's um, so it seems like there's I don't know I don't know this may be a I hope it's not too controversial, but a different perspective. It seems to me that there's two different ways that you can approach things that are happening within the People's Republic of China. Uh, you can do it a, in a, a, neg a kind of negative way, pointing out the things that are happening and and asking people to stop. Um, it, it, there has to be an enormous amount of pressure, which may be happening with the Uyghurs, I'm not sure, um, for that to actually bear fruit. Um, it has to, this is, you know, you can't, the West hasn't been great at uh, listening to people from the other parts of the world for the past few hundred years. Um, so uh, to then turn around and say, you should do what we say after we've stolen other people's land and done stuff is a bit weird, right? Um, so it, that, that negative thing has to be intense in order for it to get through, in order for it to change anything. But there have been, I would say, more creative and positive responses uh, that um, to make people... Because there's two things happening. If, you, if, you're, if people are being... Uh, their, their language and their culture and their identity is being lost, uh, then a positive response to that is to encourage it, to make sure that people speak... Uh, the language of the Uyghur language or the Tibetan language, and uh, they have uh, student programs. I know in New South Wales, I was part of a um, a friend of mine was setting up a schools program to get Tibetan registered as a as a minority language in in New South Wales um, for for high school, and uh, to encourage uh, exchanges with the uh, diaspora communities outside, um, and to uh, also to encourage. Uh, education and uh, health practices uh, and uh, uh, encourage d diverse opinions and, and kind of perform uh, democracy and uh, tolerance uh, in communities outside of uh, the P People's Republic of China seems to be a much more positive way of doing it. And, and those things you can see keep having fruit, yeah, keep bearing fruit. Mm. Mm. David, you're visiting from the US. Do you, do you have any sense of where the discussion is heading? Uh, in the US around this, or any other ideas you might mm -hmm. have about, you know, um, what a what a sort of an effective form of solidarity might look like in this in this um, situation. Just was thinking, about the American president doesn't have much of a attention <laughs> yeah. span, yeah. so yeah. Um, he tends to uh, lean towards authoritarian <laughs> states of North yeah. Korea and elsewhere. Yeah. So I'm not sure yeah. where that the United States is going to be taking the lead on this yeah, one. Right. Um, one other issue I just wanted to put on the table, um, because this is a huge issue in Australian politics, of course. Um, this is a refugee question. It's, it's a little-known dimension of the refugee crisis in, in Asia. That, you know, there are Uyghur refugees now floating around um, in very vulnerable s situation in, in countries of Southeast Asia and so on. I, I don't think there's many, uh, many new refugees coming out at the moment, but there are still uh, people there. Um, Erkin, this is something that I think an Australian audience might be interested in, in hearing about. Can you say a bit about the, the refugee problem that people face, trying to find refuge if they're getting out of uh, Xinjiang? Yes, the several countries in Europe uh, made a decision not mm. to return Uyghurs back home mm. uh, because basically they will get disappeared mm. if they go back. Uh, there are three countries that are refu Uyghur refugee issues. One is the, one is the Saudi Arabia. Okay. There are about 30,000 Uyghurs. They are stateless. They don't really? have a passport, anything. Really? Wow. Um, and uh, about 10 plus uh, thousand in Egypt. Mm -hmm. uh, they are in great danger mm -hmm. at the moment because they returned some mm -hmm. and they all disappeared. Mm -hmm. So the one th once they return it, you cannot find them again. Mm -hmm. And another big one is Turkey. Mm -hmm. 
uh, Turkey uh, also have um, again, more than 30,000 Uyghurs. Mm -hmm. And they are so scared right now, uh, trying to get go somewhere else, like Europe and uh, Canada, for example. Mm -hmm. I have a colleague here, Mahmoud Tohti, he, he's working on that, yeah. like uh, moving some Uyghurs to Canada, for example, yeah. through the government, of course. So we have this issue that those people are very in a panic, right, in a panic mm -hmm. state, mm -hmm. especially people in Turkey. Uh, that Tur Turkish policy is not stable. Mm -hmm. They're changing constantly depending on the interest, national interest. And uh, we are very worried mm -hmm. about that. Yeah. I'll just add, I mean, it is really shocking to me in this situation that, you know, in, in the recent two years, there have been cases of Australia actually returning refugees to, to China uh, mm -hmm. as well. It's, um, it's appalling. There have been cases of we, not, we don't know who, Chinese citizens arriving by boat and, and being sent back, you know. Mm -hmm. So in that respect, you know, we are, you know, we are not a um, uh, responsible global actor um, by any stretch. It might be time to um, open up the discussion to questions and, and, and comments. I, I do welcome if people just have a comment they'd like to make on this issue. Um, that, that's fine, but I, I will ask people to be uh, brief, maybe around about a minute. Um, and um, so we have two microphones. Um, we have Anna and Andy are going to... Um, <laughs> hand around the mics and we might play it by ear. I might take a few comments and then throw it back to the panel um, at, uh, at, 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 at opportune moments. <laughs> um, so this was the first hand that I saw here, this um, woman here, and um, maybe the gentleman in the white shirt after, after, yep. Good evening, thank you so much for a uh, very interesting uh, subject matter. Uh, forgive my ignorance, I know very little about this particular uh, situation, but one thing that really strikes me, and we've very slightly touched on it in talking about some of the diaspora who are in, for example, Saudi, what voices um, are Islamic nations and Islamic leaders bringing uh, to this situation? I, I, I don't hear them. Um, where are they, and why yeah. aren't we hearing more from them? Thank you. Okay, we'll take a couple of questions, and then uh, we can come back to uh, the panel. I think I was up here next, and then maybe this this woman here after. Yeah, so here first. Yep. Okay. Thank you very much for your interesting and also very brief information about Xinjiang. As experts, I just want. Uh, to ask uh, questions, but before my questions, I introduce myself. I'm an Australian citizen, but from the same regions. I came to this country 15 years ago as a refugee, and then since then settled down in this country and working as a trainer. And I have four sisters and relatives, and we have any relations cut off in the last two years. And one thing is very sad news is I have two nephews who boys from my one sister and who married uh, in 2000, in August, uh, October 2016. And then for the marriage, I just sent $1,000 as a gift for them to buy something for their marriage because I, as I couldn't go back home. And then uh, just six, three, eight or four months later, one of the boys disappeared. And I heard from the parents that he was uh, taken by the government, but since then I have no idea about uh, the boy. And uh, 
Also, another question, another thing is my, my I lost my wife in this country for cancer and I married to my wife's uh, cousin in 2015 and then now Australian government is already approved the uh, permanent visa uh, five years, but the passport before she came to Australia was collected, confiscated by the government. And my question is, uh, as experts, China experts, uh, do you think, guys, uh, just in the near future, the Chinese government will succumb to the international uh, pressure uh, so that our people be released and be free, especially more than millions of people are uh, in the internment camp at the moment. Thank you. So do you have any, uh, something like any, uh, what, do, what do I say, just yeah. any uh, idea that the Chinese government relax its policies or not okay. in the near future? Thank you. Yeah. Um, might take uh, one more here and then if people want to respond. Hello, thanks for opening up the discussion. So I have a question and it kind of boils down to representation. Um, personally, I have like um, looked into it very briefly, but I feel like I just wanted to ask you guys, what do you think about representation in terms of the government representation of these ethnic minorities versus self-representation? So obviously that's maybe like if there was more self-representation by these ethnic groups, it could have been a different situation um, leading up to you know events conspiring now. Um, but also, what do you think of like the Chinese government kind of, um, I guess, um, infantilizing like these ethnic minority groups and like uh, bringing like culture, like treating these minority groups as like dancing or like <laughs> folk, you know, like really like touching base upon like that very cultural aspect, but then like also shedding them in a negative light. You know yeah. what I mean? Like yeah. just Definitely. like general thoughts on self-representation sure. and representation yeah. by government. I'm sure that's something that everyone has has. Um, Thoughts on? We'll take one more question and then whichever of these questions you'd like to come back mm -hmm. and respond to, we'll, we'll ask you to. Yep. Thank Hi, you. Um, my name is Fatima. I'm also from the Uyghur community. Um, my father and my brother, they're also taken to the concentration camp for two years. And my father has a lot of complicated health issues. I don't know if he's getting any proper treatment or not. And my brother, I don't really know where he is or which place, which concentration camp he is. My mother and my sister, they're also under house arrest in Kashgar, um, in East Turkestan or Xinjiang. So um, I know from the psychological point of view, uh, there is abuse going on, all sorts of abuse. From the psychological point of view, the only way to stop the abuse is that the abuser has to stop the abuse. There is no no way that we can, like as abused, being abused, we can say that stop the abuse and the abuser stops it. So um, what I really want to say is that what the international community and every countries around the world can do for Uyghurs or Tibetans or the, all the other people who are suffering from the, the communist party is that really w like raise your voice strongly that stop. Because if we say that we are too weak and we are, our voice is just like my voice, very low. So, and do you think that in the near future, as the, the Mr. Mahmoud said, that, that China would stop the abuse against the human rights? Thank you. Okay, thanks. So we have some questions about the response from uh, Islamic countries, Islamic leaders. Um, we have this question of <laughs> prognosis. Um, how, how do we imagine China responding here? And then this um, issue about representation. Um, I don't know, David, do you want to? Let, let me well, respond okay. to yeah. the Islamic Ed, Ed countries. Yep, yeah, sure. Yeah, the, 
we are religiously, we are Muslims, and, uh, but we are abandoned by the Islamic world. And uh, ethnically, we are one of the Turkic tribes, and uh, we were abandoned by the Turkic brothers as well. Uh, we don't have anybody. There is a reason for that. Uh, for, uh, there are about four major reasons. The number one is the economic reason. Uh, the China invested a lot of money in the Muslim world and also Turkic world as well. Uh, for example, there is a World Islamic League, 57 members of them. For 20 of them, China is the number one trade partner. Um, so there are huge money involved in it. That's why they keep uh, quiet. Second one is all these uh, Muslim countries are, um, are dictator countries. They don't have freedom. The citizens don't have freedom. So if they want to uh, expose the Uyghur issue, the people say, how about yourself? You have a human rights, rights issue too. So that's the, another, it's a problem for them. Uh, third one is uh, many Muslim countries uh, think China is, the, is their partner against the West and the, against the US. Um, so that's why last year, uh, November of last year, there was a UN Human Rights Council meeting approving, uh, evaluating Chinese human rights reports. China presented a report. And uh, all the Muslim countries voted for it, the Turkic and the Muslim countries. Only 15 Western countries voted against to it. That's the current situation. Uh, there's one more reason I, I kind of forgot now. All right, <laughs> you can, go, but you can come, <laughs> come back. A any response to any of the questions from, from David? Yeah. Well, I, I was just thinking the other issue that I was thinking about the Tibetan example with the Dalai Lama is that there's without a, a kind of a central figure for the Uyghur community to to go out outreach and meet with these foreign governments. I think it also makes it very difficult for Western governments to identify a single voice to kind of to react to. Not that the Dalai Lama, you know, achieved a considerable amount yeah. with that as well. It, 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 yeah, he does. He hasn't. I mean, he's. Lovely man, but he hasn't. <laughs> um, it's really complicated. It's th that's why I keep thinking. It's the, I don't know the prognosis. <laughs> it, it seems to come and go. You know, these, I mean, everybody probably knows this. The the tensions go up, the tensions go down. The issues come up, the issues go down over time. Um, so uh, you know, it it probably will go down, but it, when is is a complicated issue. And um, the other the other thing about making representations to the west, I'm. It, it, the, it doesn't, I, I just don't know how that works. It'd have to be so much pressure. I mean, yeah. Did you guys want to take yeah. up this question of representation? Because yeah. in the, you know, the historical literature yeah. around ethnic minorities, there is a lot of discussion of this kind of cultural yeah. framing of, of non-Chinese peoples. <laughs> yeah, what's the relationship of that stuff to this more kind of hard edge policy stuff. When you said yeah. that I had this memory of, I have a dear friend that was in a situation like I am now and because she was Tibetan and she got to the end she was asked to sing a song <laughs> and I was like oh my god I hope no one asked me to sing. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, so, so it was this idea of this singing, dancing people and uh, this uh, representation um, and uh, in some ways you get this negotiation with the state that where people from the, like the powerful uh, entities uh, that you'll get people um, that's how the, it's the same in in lots of uh, minority groups. That's how they get power. That's how they, so peop, Tibetans always win the version, the Chinese version of um, like Chinese Idol. Um, yeah, some of them have uh, have won, and it's a, a place to have a voice in the national debate. So it's definitely 
um, part of it um, and you see people negotiating with it. But I don't know, they're not the only people that do this. That's, that's something that happens all around the world. So I don't know how much it plays into other mm. aspects of, yeah, of, of, of more hard kind of oppression. I might, I might add something on that point because these um, quite rigid definitions of what constitutes, say, Uyghur culture or something, they do play a role here because they then become the, the benchmark against which deviations are measured, mm -hmm. right? And deviation from this notion of a traditional Uyghur culture is one of the things that, you know, might get red lights flashing in the police department that this person's, you know, at risk of, of radicalisation. They have this notion, and we have it too in our policing in, in the West, that you can somehow... Uh, predict by changes in behaviour, people are at risk of radicalisation. So, for example, Uyghurs dance. So, if someone doesn't dance, there's something <laughs> strange going on. You know, um, there's been a lot, of, and they've actually gone to the, the the extent of actually forcing people to dance in order to prove that they're not um, at at risk of, of radicalisation. So, it is actually very central to uh, this issue. Okay, we'll take a few more questions. There was someone up. Was there someone up the back? Yeah, I think yeah, with the short hair. We'll start over there, and then um, maybe someone, yeah, up the back with the glasses there. Yeah, uh, the glasses um, in, in the back. Uh, second, so f here first, and then, yeah. Yeah, I just yeah. Uh, got a similar question to that lady, and I just answered that. Is that why the Muslim countries keep silence about these these issues? And one more question is about, you know, that it is true that it's a rising of the Islamophobia mood around the Western countries, mm -hmm. like the Donald Trump mm -hmm. or AFD in Germany, mm -hmm. or Paul Putin in Australia. Mm -hmm. And do you think this kind of mood, the Islamophobia, affect the Western countries to do some act to deal with the issues? Mm. Okay, yeah, thank you. Question. Yeah, it's an important question. Yeah. Uh, thank you all for your information. Uh, I, my question is of two parts. Um, from a Chinese government perspective, are they more worried that the fact that Uyghurs are Muslims, or are they more worried on the separatist intentions mm -hmm. of the Uyghurs, yep. and that they identify themselves as Turkic people, and mm -hmm. they identify it as East Turkestan, or the Xinjiang? Yeah. And my second part of the question is, from a Chinese government point of view, what does success look like mm -hmm. with these concentration camps, what do, what do they want to achieve? Thank you. Um, yeah, up here? Yeah. Um, thank you for everyone. Um, so the question that I have is that right now we are making this into a human rights campaign. We're saying people are suffering, that's why we need to help them. But a lot of the time it can be a case of money talks. So what interest is there for Western country to actually help Uyghurs? Mm -hmm. What can we Uyghurs use as bargaining chip? Mm -hmm. to attract this help. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Um, those are some really good questions. So, I might, um, so we have this question of what role is the ex existence of Islamophobia mm -hmm. outside China in the West going to play in this, um, in this issue? It's a question of national versus religious um, approach to this um, and then what, what success looks like. Um, and then this, this question of you know, what, what interest would someone, uh, would a state outside China have in in responding to this, any 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 thoughts? I can uh, I can let me try to answer the yeah. first question. Of course, the Uy Uyghurs being Muslim helped um, helped uh, Uy Uyghurs being Muslim is part of the reason why 
the Western world so careless about the world issue. Actually, the United States uh, representative Christopher Smith uh, mentioned this thing in a, in a uh, testimony in a, in a conference. It's in the YouTube. He said, imagine if, if they are not uh, Muslims, but instead they are Christians. What, would the, what the world would be look like right now? That's what he said. So yeah, the, being Muslim is part of the reason that uh, we are getting very um, little support uh, about, about what we are fa facing right now. Uh, can I answer that gentleman's question as well? Yeah, sure. Yeah, the Uyghur people are is an ancient people. We have more than 2,000 years of civilized uh, history. Uh, like from 18th, 8th century to 14th century, Uyghurs uh, is the dominant culture in Central Asia. Um, so Uyghur has this kind of pride, saying that we are, we are, we are people of having own country, own um, king, king, kingdom, for example. Uh, so uh, China, Chinese government, when they came, came to Xinjiang in 1949, they said, we will come in and uh, put the everything in order and leave. You can live in your life. That's why we got the name of autonomous region. And we never got it. Uh, we were oppressed again and again and again. And the last one happened in 2009. Uh, the, it is amazing that the Chinese government put out a number saying 194 people died and the 147 are Han Chinese. Uh, after 10 years today, the Western media still uses that number. Um, in 1989, during the Tiananmen Square uh, the, the demonstration, China reported only three people died, and the two of them are military soldiers, and one of them civilian. And they showed that the burned soldiers' uh, image again and again on the TV. I was in Beijing at that time, I saw so many times. If you go to International Red Cross's website and check uh, the number of the missing people in, in uh, 1989 in Tiananmen Square, you, they, got, they recorded more than 2,500 people. So this is the contrast be between what Chinese government say What's the reality? And uh, so the, for Uyghur people in 2009, that's, we have a very tragic situation. The government says less than 200, and more, most of them are Han Chinese, but Uyghur people lost more than 10,000 people that night. Anyway, um, so um, Uyghur, this, this are connected to each other. The religion is part of the reason that Uyghur people could keep their ethnicity so long, even now. Like uh, earlier, uh, David said there are 56 ethnic groups in China. But if you examine carefully, they are almost all gone, except Uyghurs and the Tibetans. The rest does not exist. They only exist in names. They're assimilated. Um, <clears throat> so the, the Uyghurs didn't get assimilated. Part of the reason is they have very long he the cultural history, and they have religion, Islam. It's very different. Uh, I mean, Chinese people, Chinese people don't have a religion. Uyghurs have. It helped. And being Turkic also helped. So they all can connect it together. Now, I want to point out one thing. Uh, China originally started, to, started this campaign saying we are, we are fighting the war against terror after 9-11. And if you pay attention to the recent, recent news, the Chinese uh, ambassador in the, to the US said, we are putting people in concentration camp to convert them to normal, normal persons. This is a quote, he said. We are, we are trying to convert Uyghurs to normal persons. This is not isolated incident. They are, they are utilizing the uh, international uh, 
situation at the moment. If you search right now saying Islamic reform, just search on the Google Islamic reform. Recently there are articles in Europe and also in the US, uh, people started to talk about Islamic reform. So now the China says, oh, we want to convert the Uyghur people to normal persons. And they also are talking about synthesizing their religion, Christ Christ Christianity, mm. Islam, everything. So now, they sh because the war, war on ter ter terror right now started to um, come down a little bit, so now it's shift the gear to, you know, they're catching up on the other side right now. Islamic reform, we are helping them. Okay, sorry. Thank, thank you. Um, do you guys have any thoughts on these, these issues? Well, I think the question about what, it, what does success look like for China is a very good one. Um, and I think, you know, you know, you've touched on a lot of that, and I think that it's really one of security, and we're really talking about the kind of the central government looking for stability, and their version of stability often makes, in, and this goes back centuries, as you know well, David, that they want to make the borders look more like the center, mm -hmm. and the more that they can impose that and at least superficially make that happen, I think that's what their version of success would look like. Yeah. I might just add on that. I mean, the, on the Islamophobia question, it's very clear that China is drawing on a language that is now an international language about radicalization and this, this, connection, this idea that there's a sort of a connection between a particular type of Islamic theology and a propensity for violence, so on. All these things that don't actually stand up to um, any evidence but have been adopted in, in our, our policing, you know, European, the prevent, prevent system in the UK, you know, the, the America as well. So I think it is a really important issue that, that needs to be tackled at the same time. We have time probably for a couple more questions. Um, I, s I see a lot of hands come up now. Um, I'll leave it to you guys to <laughs> choose um, maybe, maybe another th <laughs> three questions. Um, yeah. Thanks. Uh, yeah, please go ahead. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I guess this question is an extension of um, some of the topics that we're starting to touch on. Uh, I just want to know a little bit more about the uh, modes and technologies of control and oppression that are being used here. Like, where did the Chinese government learn them? Was it civil war? Was it border war? Was it uh, straight up policing? Mm -hmm. And uh, where is that going? Like, where sh what should we expect to see with the way that the government, you know, learns uh, to, to spread its ideology by force or through softer means and mm -hmm. so on. Thank you. Yep, up here. Yeah. Oh, I know you listed the BRI as like one of the political motivations for why they're cracking down in Xinjiang, but I also wanted to know your thoughts on like uh, just maybe like uh, any kind of sinocentrism that plays into this as well. Could you maybe just say a little bit more about what you mean by, by sinocentrism? Uh, just like uh, in terms of like the global uh, political climate of a lot of uh, people becoming a lot more ethnocentrist mm -hmm. and okay. uh, just yep. like the collective psychology of that, how Got that plays it. here. Got it, yeah. Okay, um, yeah. Uh, thank you very much. From uh, what I understood from uh, the speakers uh, that mentioned and also from the things that uh, I uh, learned myself before, uh, <clears throat> there are about one million uh, Uyghur people uh, placed in concentration camps and the rest of the population are also under extreme pressure by the Chinese authorities. Many of the people are forced to uh, attend daily uh, indoctrination uh, sessions starting from 8 a.m. until uh, evening. 
and many of the children are taken from their families. Uh, communication and travel. Uh, we don't have too much okay. time. So okay. Sorry. Okay. Well, um, just one thing about Turkey, if you don't mind, I want to mention that. Briefly. Yep. Yes, um, uh, there are a lot of countries who are returning uh, Uyghurs back to China, but Turkey has not done so mm. yet. Mm. In 2014, they accepted more than 10,000 people from Malaysia and Thailand. And recently, about three months ago, they accepted 11 people who were from Malaysia. And most recently, a famous singer uh, passed away. And they said he died. And the Turkish uh, foreign minister officials um, made a comment saying that uh, uh, about against this. And uh, so in my opinion, Turkey is, is doing uh, much better compared to other countries, including some Western countries, given, her, given their strength level. Um, my okay, question, so can I, yeah. yeah. My sure. question is, um, how much awareness of this Uyghur issue uh, uh, is known among the Chinese community overseas, sure. and uh, how much those people or some, uh, what is the amount of, uh, I mean, whether they are uh, raising their voices against atrocities of the Chinese government for the government to abandon their policies. Thank you. Thank Thanks. you. Maybe we'll take one more. Yep, up here. Thanks. Hi. Um, I was just thinking uh, perhaps one of the uh, most salient difficulties in the Xinjiang issue is the difficulty of integrating uh, Uyghur people into the mainstream Chinese society. I can't imagine uh, indigenous Australians or indigenous Americans in America and Australia not speaking English fluently and not uh, familiar with uh, the popular culture and uh, the institutions and thriving in those societies and having their voices heard. So I think one of the biggest problems in China with uh, the Uyghur uh, minorities is uh, I think in general they, they don't speak very good Chinese and they, they're not very uh, close to the Chinese uh, culture and course. Okay. Are there any lessons that we can draw from uh, how indigenous people can be... Uh, uh, can gain better treatment and rights and uh, self-government uh, in the USA and in Australia. I know there's this native title thing in Australia and uh, to some degree indigenous Americans have some uh, land, but I can't see uh, in any near future that Uyghur people can have um, real autonomous regions in China. But are there any other lessons we can draw from the cases in uh, the US and Australia that can be helpful in a positive way okay. in China. Got it. Thank you. Um, okay, I think that's all we have time for. Thanks. I see a lot of hands, but unfortunately, we, um, we're going to have to um, get some final responses from the, um, the speakers. So we have the question about um, the, the techniques of policing, I suppose, and, and where they're coming from and where they're developing. Are they spreading elsewhere in China? Um, for example, is this part of a kind of a global tide of ethno-nationalism, I suppose. Is that, is that a useful way to think about this? I think that's, yeah, um, ethnocentrism. Um, and then um, uh, Chinese community, yeah, Chinese community. Any response from the Chinese community? And are there lessons that we can draw from Australia um, to, um, to come up with some uh, positive ideas here? Any, any thoughts on any <laughs> of those issues? Lessons from Australia for positive ideas. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, try not to snort. Um, <laughs> so um, I was thinking there's, uh, there's a big difference, uh, as we were speaking, between 
the Tibetan situation and the Uyghur situation within the People's Republic of China. And that is that there is a people keep having this idea of China as being a monolith and it's not. 1.5 billion people don't think the same thing every day, all day. And there is a there is a growing group of people within of Chinese people, of Han Chinese people within the People's Republic of China who are interested in, supportive of, and reflective even about the Tibetans' cultural situation, e even if they're dismissive of their political situation. And that's a big difference. Right? So th there's an interest in the culture, there's an interest in the place. This is why it's being set up as a tourism hub. And uh, there's an idea that you can gain something from uh, the, the Tibetan culture. Um, so I think that's a big distinction that you have here. You don't have the same discourse in China about the Uyghurs. Um, and I'd love to say that, that we were getting something right, maybe the... the uh, but I doubt it. Um, uh, the, the thing I keep thinking about with uh, looking at the relationship between the Han Chinese and the uh, and the in minority groups in Western China is please don't be like us, <laughs> you know, again and again. It's not that we can teach anything, that we're a negative lesson. Um, and, and that people don't, shouldn't have to learn a, a, a majority language in order to be able to thrive. That's really depressing for us. About, uh, about what the common Chinese people think, yeah about the Chinese government's policy towards Uyghurs and other uh, minorities. Recently, BBC published an article about that. The BBC reporters went to Xinjiang and talked to ordinary Han Chinese people, asked them, uh, what do you think about the Chinese government policy? And that report says, most of them said it's good. We are very stable now, and we don't worry about uh, riots or something. Um, the China has a uh, system, the system to to control the people. It's called networking isolation. The networking is the net networking of the police. Isolation is of the isolation of the population. So this village and this village isolated completely. If something happens here, this village does not know. So what happens in Xinjiang, the other part of the China does not know at all. So they don't have any idea. Until they're inter they, start, they start to, to be targeted, like a, recently, a lot of technology were experimented in Xinjiang and they transferred to other parts of China. At that time, they will say, oh, this was we saw in Xinjiang, now it's coming to us, kind of things. <coughs> and uh, as to that uh, this gentleman's uh, question, I wrote an article, I wrote a lot of articles in Uyghur, basically importing uh, knowledge from the Western world to, to Xinjiang because we have we lack information. One thing I propose is, if China wants to assimilate Uyghurs, the best way of doing that is the equality of people. Like US, US does not force anybody to change culture, culture or something else. But they have a very strict law on the ethnic equality. Uh, the, the, China, the US, the US uh, law does not allow any ethnic discrimination, even a very tiny one. And the Uyghur people, since 1949, have been treated as a second-class citizen, oppressed again and again and again. If you list the things that happened in our region uh, during the Cultural Revolution, just we didn't have a way to keep our ordinary life. We are losing in each incident so many people, and the, the Uyghur people didn't have any rights. Look at now, I said, I, I, I completed all my education in Uyghur language school. My, 
English, I learned by myself. My first foreign language is Han Chinese. That's what I, I learned in college. Uh, but uh, right now, even the speaking, two Uyghurs speak on the street to each other in Uyghur is banned. If you, if you keep doing this kind of things to another people, how you can integrate them into your own society? So uh, like the US, uh, we have, like, uh, if you see one gathering of like, 100 people, you can find like, uh, more than 50 ethnicities among them. But uh, we are all one people. We don't have any differences as far as the equality is concerned. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. That's how Thank I get into attention. NASA as well. I'm going to have to um, end the discussion there. This is a hugely complex issue. It's an issue that is, is not going to go away, but I'm very glad that um, ton tonight we've, uh, we've got the discussion uh, going here at Sydney University. And uh, thank you uh, very much for your, your participation. And join me in thanking the speakers uh, as well. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.